Welcome to Guidepost, the cutting-edge podcast series produced by the CRISPR Journal. Hello, I'm Kevin Davis, Executive Editor of the CRISPR Journal. Thanks for joining us. Today, my interview with George Church. Guidepost is brought to you by the CRISPR Journal, publishing the latest research, analysis and opinion in the field of CRISPR biology and genome editing. Cutting-edge science at CRISPRjournal.com. For more than 30 years, George Church of Harvard Medical School has been a towering figure in the world of genomic science, from developing some of the fundamental technology in DNA sequencing to advances in synthetic and systems biology, the creation of the Personal Genome Project, to leading the Genome Project Right or GP Right Consortium, not to mention too many companies to fit on an acknowledgement slide, any progress in our ability to read write or edit DNA typically has Church's fingerprints on it. Not surprisingly, Church's interest in genome editing predates CRISPR, but his lab continues to spur some of the most important advances and applications in the field. In 2013, he published one of the first demonstrations of genome editing using CRISPR in human cells, an accomplishment that sometimes gets forgotten. From his highly publicized interest in de-extinction and the recreation of the woolly mammoth, the creation of crispered pigs for xenotransplantation, to his somewhat outspoken views on germline editing and enhancement, Church is almost never out of the headlines. I recently visited George in his office at Harvard Medical School. It's a very wide-ranging discussion, and we tried to squeeze as much as we could into about 40 minutes. Please enjoy. George Church, thanks for the invitation, and thanks for joining us on Guidepost. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, you are a member of the CRISPR Journal editorial board. Let me remind yeah, you. So. That's right. That's, my, that's one of my many conflicts of interest. <laughs> um, before we dive into what you've done and what your diverse interests are in CRISPR and gene editing, maybe a quick for folks who aren't familiar, what's the, some of the cool things that are going on in the, in the church lab just outside these doors at the moment? Yeah. Well, I think the theme is technology development, kind of radical basic enabling transformative technologies if we can yeah and most of them are paired with some really cool application that's a little out of reach with current technology so you have a pair of radical technology and radical application so for example gp right is something we've been working on for a long time before it was even named that yeah. uh, and the idea is to recode genomes and the application is to make any organism resistant to all viruses even viruses we've never seen before right that's recoding and we're doing that now from bacteria to mammals, humans, plants. Another one is organoids. So we make organs in pigs by making, you know, dozens, maybe 80 different changes in their genome yeah. to make them more human compatible and yeah. eliminate their viruses. But we can also make organs from humans. And these are surprising me how quickly all this is going. Yeah. And in particular, how you can get definite insights, even diagnostically important insights into very late onset diseases like Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, and bipolar yeah. in about two to four weeks, yeah. even though the onset should take 20 to 70 years. So we're making mostly brain organoids, uh, but we have vascularized ones. So we're uh -huh. very big on getting good blood flow right. uh, so we can make bigger ones. Right. We're doing aging reversal, yeah. gene drives, which uh, allow us to you know, cure diseases yeah. uh, by dealing with the vectors, the animal yeah. vectors. Focusing on malaria or other? Well, malaria and Lyme. Yeah. Uh, and we're also looking at other approaches to Lyme, yeah. uh, in, including vaccines and, and looking at people that are exceptionally resistant to yeah. it the way, same way we did with HIV. Yeah. 
uh, encoding data into DNA. Uh, the most recent breakthrough there is we encoded a terabyte of, of developmental data into mice. So every mouse in the colony had, encodes a, a fresh terabyte of data, and, and it only takes a billionth of its body. Wow. And, you know, I could go on, but that's a sampling of things. That's in addition to your book, is it? <laughs> that's right. My book was the first thing encoded <laughs> right. in DNA, and that was, uh, that was in 2012, yeah. and that yeah. was a half a megabyte. So yeah. we've gone from half a megabyte now to a yeah. terabyte. Yeah. We, in this podcast series, we've spent a fair bit of time talking about sort of the history and some of those sort of seminal moments in the development of genome editing. You got into genome editing before you got into CRISPR. Oh, correct? way, way before. Yeah. So... Well, I got into recombinant DNA in the 70s, which I consider kind of an honorary member <laughs> yes. of, or editing is an honorary member of the yeah. recombinant DNA family. And so, you know, I participated in, in, I was one of the first employees at Biogen, which was used for recombinant DNA. And then as soon as I established my lab in 1986, right. we had two things. One was reading genomes, and other was writing genomes. Right. And we, we did homologous recombination, which was precise editing. Uh -huh. Since then, we've kind of gotten great inflation uh, and you know, yeah. distortion of the word editing. But yeah. back in the 80s, when we started working on editing, it meant doing exactly what you wanted, making exact yeah. changes whether they're big or small. Yeah. Now it's like, if you can kind of mangle a gene, I call it genome vandalism, that counts as editing. And most people that have actually edited would be appalled yes. <laughs> by that definition. Yes. So I was mostly Lambda Red, which we just finally started working on Lambda Red-like things that were hard to transfer from bacteria, okay. uh, unlike nucleases, which are easy to transfer from bacteria. I mean, it's like, duh, a knife mm -hmm. works on any organism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so we, we now have that more general, that Lambda Red system looks like it might be generalizable, which right. would be really great because yeah. it's, it's a better system yeah. than the genome vandalism. Yeah in every category. Yeah. And before the, the big papers uh, in 2012 and 2013, Feng Zhang spent a period in your lab as, yes. a, as a research fellow or he, something. Right. So, he was a Harvard Junior Fellow, postdoctoral right. fellow. Yeah. Working initially on talents. talents. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We published a bunch together right. on that. Right. And then your interest in CRISPR, did that begin with Kevin Esvelt or was there other? Probably Prashant Mali. Right, uh, right. So Prashant and Fung and Kevin all yeah. worked together yeah. in a little corner of the Visa Institute, in my lab in the Visa Institute. So yeah. they were all postdocs, very friendly, yeah. very uh, sharing. And CRISPR was just on our list of nucleases. There were a bunch of right. nucleases. The, the Argonaut was another nucleus that was on our list. Right. But we were always looking for precise editing. And we wanted to do it in normal human cells, okay? Yes. So we try to limit it because there's so many things we can do and so many things yeah. we already do. So we wanted to make it hard on ourselves. So precise editing in human cells was our initial goal. And we did it. The very first paper in January 2013 was yes. precise editing human cells. Yes. And nobody else did normal human cells for quite a while. Yeah. There's a great temptation to use 293 cells, which are quite abnormal. It's like HeLa right. cells or K562. These are all right. bizarre aneuploid. They're even variable in what their genome looks like. Right. So we felt that those were completely unacceptable okay. surrogates for yeah. uh, clinical applications. So you're referring to your science paper that came out online in January 2013, yeah. obviously some six months after the Doudna-Charpentier paper. So did Well, they... they were cutting DNA in vitro. Of course. That yes. was I'm very not, I'm far not making, from I'm that. just chronologically, yeah, I'm not yeah, making yeah. a head-to-head yeah, yeah, yeah. -head yeah. comparison. But did the system that they described with the single-guide RNA, yeah. how did that shape or influence your that, thinking? That was extremely fundamental, and I've said yeah. this uh, in the past. Yes. Uh, 
I think it had been on our list, but it had bumped way up on yeah. our list at that point. Yeah. And we ended up using a different guide than she used. Yes. Uh, and in fact, Fung showed in his paper side by side yeah. with ours that her guide didn't work in his hands. Yes. We didn't make that claim that it didn't work. We just said, here's the one that does work. Yeah. And that was the one that we published, yeah. uh, ended up sweeping through. Every, yes. Everybody ended up using that, for, yes. at least for the Espiogenes work. And I think I've seen uh, in the fall of 2012, you emailed Jennifer to say, yeah. congratulations on a spectacular yeah, paper. Exactly. By the way, we've got this working in right. human yeah. cells. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I like to, if I know that I'm converging on some yes. somebody's work, even though I consider Jennifer you know, a talented biochemist, I thought there was a non-zero probability she might get interested in human clinical applications. Yes. Uh, so I thought it was courtesy to let her know. Yes. I didn't actually know all the other people that might be working right. on it. Keith Young was part of a grant with me, so I, okay. I, I knew he, he would be interested. Right. Uh, we, we started the grant promising to do zinc fingers yes. with Keith. Yes. And then we switched. Then we went to talons with Fong and then to CRISPR. So we went far beyond what we had promised in yeah. the grant. You know? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you, I'm laughing, but you published in, in 2013 in the same issue as uh, Fong's paper. And I, there was an interesting episode a couple of years later where you wrote to a journalist at The Scientist to sort yeah. of correct the, the narrative that they oh, had put yeah. out in a story right. yeah. because it hadn't mentioned your work and accomplishments in the same yeah. context yeah. as, as yeah. Fung, who yeah. seems to get most... Was that a fleeting bit of disgruntlement or is well, that it still... Well, it was just a technical correction. Yeah. I, I make technical corrections uh, on a regular basis. Yes. And it just, you know, it's just said that there were three groups involved in yeah. editing. I can't remember whether they said editing human genomes or just yeah. editing. But the point is, the first two hadn't shown editing. Yes. And the second one was side by side with ours. Yes. And we had shown editing in normal human cells and yes. they hadn't done normal human cells. So, I mean, it's like, I didn't want anybody to be left out, but I, 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 that, was, that was it. And, this, and, and I also had another case where I did this work with Heidi Ledford because uh -huh. uh, I felt that people had been left out. It wasn't me. It was all the postdocs right. and that not just from my group. So I felt that Martin Jenik had been left out of the story and... Prashant Mali and Luhan Yang and Le Kong. Le Kong was actually a shared student between my yeah. lab and Feng Zhang's. Yeah. He was first author. Yeah. So all these people were first authors on these three papers. Yeah. And, the, and you just never heard of them. And they were the ones that did a lot of the inspiration, a lot of the work. Yeah. And I just thought, so Heidi did a terrific job of, yeah. of covering that. So yeah. that's, those are two cases where I felt there was just this egregious omission. Fair enough. You're a co-founder of Editas. Two dozen other yeah. companies, which we yeah. will get to if there's time. Um, and as we sit here, the the patent interference is still has sort of been rekindled, yeah. and this saga drags on. Do you feel that? Do you have a stake in this? In the sense, do you personally feel that the the patent uh, belongs in one camp versus the other? You you have good relations with both the Zhang Group and the Doudna Group, mm -hmm. um, but it seems that their respective institutions have yeah. are not interested in settling this in any yeah. time soon. Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of stake, I have equity in Intellia and Editas. Uh, and even if I didn't, I, I always considered a Tempest and a Teapot from day one. I, yeah. I recommended that they just, you know, settle. Yeah. That they just, uh, you know, it really is, by the time it's all settled, there's going to be far better technology. Right, right. I mean, in particular, it'll be actual precise editing technology. Yes. Uh, that works very efficiently. Yes. And, and also there's so many other things you need. You need to have good delivery strategies. 
you need to have yeah. um, you know, all kinds of clinical trials. I mean, it's just yeah. it just struck me as not really worthy of. Uh, I, I certainly my patents have been unchallenged in this field, right. and uh, and even if they were challenged, I, would, I think I would be pretty wimpy about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about um, new technologies, and you've said this, I think, on several occasions that CRISPR-Cas9 probably almost certainly won't be the last word in gene editing. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of excitement recently about base editing, yeah. where you're not breaking yes. the double helix; yeah. you're just sort of oh. doing chemistry on right. on the helix in a way. Do you feel fundamentally that is a better way of going about it? Is the, is the break itself something to be avoided? Or? Oh, definitely. So we've been involved in the deaminases, the base editors, yeah. since before CRISPR. So Luhan patented yes. something in 2009. Luhan Yang. Yang. Yeah. Uh, so was co-inventor of CRISPR and deaminases and uh, applying it to pigs. Yeah. Uh, so she's like done three amazing things. Yeah. Also, she worked on Argonaut for a while and mitochondria. So I mean, five <laughs> amazing things. Okay. But she's mostly known for the pig work. Anyway, the deaminase. So we went on. I mean, David Liu's group definitely took it places where we had not gone. It was fantastic, especially yeah. the A to G base editor. Yeah. And we we got addicted to um, testing the toxicity of CRISPR, whether it's base editor or not. And they're all almost everything that everybody's using is highly toxic. If you start doing multiplex editing, yes, which is which, my obsession, yes, multiplex everything. I'm thinking about changing my middle initial. Middle initial. Right? <laughs> so so we did the study where we showed that we could get twenty six thousand edits. So our yeah. previous record was 62 edits yeah. in the pig. And we did 26,000 in, in human cells. Yeah. And that required scrupulously getting rid of every source of nicks, not just double strand breaks, but even nicks. Yeah. And even nicks that you didn't really think were nicks. Like if you deaminate a C, it becomes a U. And a U, there's a repair process that will remove that U. And it becomes an A-basic site, which could become a nick. Anyway, all these damages uh, are extremely toxic in yeah. a multiplex environment, which I think is where we're going for yeah. a lot of applications. Yeah. Uh, it's just that people talk themselves out of it because it just seems like science fiction. But when yeah. you're on exponential, science fiction becomes science fact yeah. while you're blinking. Yeah. You know. So we try to stay a little bit ahead. And uh, so we did this toxicity study, which is now yeah. published in Bioarchives. Okay, great. Um, this, uh, as we sit here, it's been, I think, quite a big week for CRISPR in the clinic. We had the report that Victoria Gray, a 30-year-old, 30 30-something 30 uh, woman from Mississippi, was the first to be dosed for sickle cell gene editing in vivo. And uh, your company, Editas, had a big announcement about uh, enrolling patients for their uh, Leber's congenital amaurosis. LCA10. Uh, LCA10 yeah. uh, trial. So now, middle of 2019, I presume this is just the beginning of a wave of what you've been talking about and hoping for now yeah. for a long time. And yeah. I'm just curious, what are your hopes for this, the clinical application of CRISPR over the next few years? Yeah, well, it's great to see this stuff, making it into clinical trials yeah. and even some gene therapies emerging yeah. out of the phase three trials victorious. And yes. uh, so we're, you know, gene therapies hit a major speed bump uh, yeah. in 1999, 2000. Yeah. Uh, but now we're, yeah. we're, we're seeing it. And, and, I, and it's not just CRISPR, it's additive genes where you're adding a gene that's yeah. missing or you're adding a, a gene that's lower, like what we're doing in our aging reversal studies uh -huh. is, you know, adding genes back that were okay. dropping during aging. Okay. So, I, yeah, I think it's, there's going to be a lot of it. I keep feeling obliged to remind us all that there is an alternative to the, I'm, I'm worried about the expense. So, you know, yeah. I, I don't want my legacy to be the most expensive drugs in history. 
So we've brought down the price of the genome from $3 billion now to $0. That I'm proud of. Yes. I'm much more excited about that yes. than I am about my contribution to expensive. Yeah. And I think the alternative gene therapy is actually genetic counseling. And it's, if it's really $0 now, then really, as long as we address the privacy issues and the utility issues, yeah. everybody could now get their genome sequence and avoid not all, yeah. but a huge fraction of these expensive orphan drugs and gene therapies yeah. by genetic yeah. counseling. There was a story in the paper recently about a family, I think in Florida, who had a child with spinal muscular atrophy and were mm -hmm. trying to get the... Yeah. Uh, and they the were refused. And refused, and then they had to crowdsource to raise the money. Yeah, exactly. Within a week, because their infant was going to hit the two-year yeah. cutoff and yeah, would yeah. be ineligible, and yeah. they, they got the money, and hopefully... Uh, I'm not surprised, but the thing is, just... this is not scalable. Correct, yeah. What people often forget is that 5% of births are of this nature. We are not going to be spending $2 million on 5% of births. I'm part of a couple of committees that are just looking to estimate the total costs, yeah. including opportunity losses and yeah. and uh, you know caregiver costs. Yeah. And it's, I estimate it's about a trillion dollars worldwide per year yeah. that we're losing due to Mendelian disease, not to mention all the pain and suffering. Yeah. It's just, that's going to be very hard to sustain. Yeah. So I think we need to be very cautious to focus our energies yeah. on things where there's not a cost-effective. Yeah. In particular, we don't want to have a have and have not. When people talk about the ethics of CRISPR, it's 90% of it should be, and probably is, about equitable distribution yeah. of expensive technology. Yeah. And so that's my main theme. And I'm based on where we are today, it could change. I'm working on making yeah. cheaper therapies. Yeah. But in the meantime, there are is it preventative medicine. Yeah. We'll spend a bit more time on this in a second, but just before we leave the sort of the technology, as CRISPR gene editing, this can apply to other forms too, but primarily about CRISPR, as it expands into the clinic, there seem to be three, you may have others for me, but three potential technical concerns. Mm -hmm. There's the off-target mm -hmm. question. Yeah. Um, there's the uh, antibody uh, question that has been yeah, raised by Porteus right. and others. Yeah. Uh, and then the delivery uh, vehicle right. as well. Yeah. How do you handicap those? Do you feel that those have been solved for the most part, or there's still got some major challenges ahead? Well, I would say I think the off-target has been exaggerated slightly, and, and I'm partially responsible because academically, it's very, yeah. uh, it's a really cool yeah. problem that we know how to solve, which is you know messing around with the off-targets. And there, we and others have published a lot of papers on this. But I think that even in the very first papers, we were getting off targets that were close to the spontaneous mutation rate. So if you're going to worry about CRISPR, you should also worry about the spontaneous mutation rate, which we are worrying about, by yes. the way, as yes. an aside. But it's very, very low. The immune, I think it's hard to evaluate since I think it's more applicable to CRISPR-I and regulatory mechanisms than it is to the hit and run of, okay. of editing. Yeah. You know, it's once and done. That's the beauty of yeah. it. It's not like most drugs where you have to take it for the rest of your life. And from that standpoint, the immune, I think, is is exaggerated. Yeah. But the academics will have a field day. We'll, of course. You know, we're working on ways yeah. of making completely human yeah. uh, editors, for yeah. example. But my disclaimer is, this is the academic speaking, right, <laughs> right, know, not, right. not the practical clinical side. Right. And delivery. And, and I think delivery definitely is the wave of the future. I mean, rather than, I have two startups that have just been launched, one called Dino and one called Ally, and they're focused on reducing the immune response. AAV uh, is already very low yes. immune response, but you can take it a little bit lower. Uh -huh. And, and the, the side effect of that is you can get away with lower doses, which brings down the cost. 
brings down the unintended negative consequences. We're also working on ways you can target it better. If you can target to just a few cells, you know, like one of the nice things about LCA10 is you're not dosing the whole body. You're just doing it in the retina. So it's one of the right. first approved right. for uh, use in vivo. So anyway, all these, all these things having to do with delivery, uh, I think, are very exciting. Right. And then I would add to your list, it's not just three. There's a fourth thing is okay. it really still doesn't do its job on target. I uh, think it's on-target sends are yeah. greater than its off-target sends. Yeah. So the base editors are not perfectly specific for a particular base, sure. and they're limited to yeah. transitions, A's to G's and C's to T's. It's yeah. very limiting. They're not the holy grail, which is arbitrary, precise editing. Yeah. And I think we should hold that concept right. as our actual goal. Now, right. I may, you know, when I put on my practical clinical yeah. hat, you know, we'll take whatever works. Yes. But don't imagine that, that we somehow jump to, yeah. you know, it's just, just, I mean, CRISPR is so incrementally different from zinc fingers and yeah. talons, and it's not yeah. what we've been looking for. Well, I look forward to your next company, Holy Grail. I, Grail's <laughs> been taken, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We have to talk a little bit about germline editing, and since I'm here, um, in the immediate aftermath of the CRISPR baby story, uh, you gave an interview to Science, which I would love for you to just clarify, because... It wasn't that you were coming to Her Jankui or JK's defense, but you did say something to the effect that you thought there was an element of piling on, that there was a mm -hmm. bit of bullying perhaps going on yeah. in the wave of condemnation and, yeah. and uproar over this. And I wondered if what do you feel about that now? Yeah, I, I feel the same or maybe even more so. Uh, you know, I don't think bullying is appropriate. I think careful evaluation of the data is important. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I was one of the few people who had access to the data and I felt that people were just saying things right. uh, as if they right. knew what was going on. And I felt that that's not very scientific of them. Access because you'd received it from a reporter, correct? Exactly. I got it from AP. Yeah. And so if I had received it before AP had given it to me, I probably would have felt obliged to yeah. point it out to yeah. various people, you yeah. know, FDA, NAS, yes. maybe journalists. But anyways, fortunately, I, the timing was good. And I've also seen it as a reviewer uh, for journals. It's been yes. sent to peer review. I mean, it's, it's not like he's trying to hide it, but they're not publishing it, you know? And I think it's a similar more of this piling on. Now, I'm, I don't want journals to get in the habit of publishing things where there's any doubt about the IRB approval or ethics. But I think this is a case where it was pretty close and uh, there was an effort made and the importance of talking about facts rather than um, yeah. speculating outweighs the fact that the IRB was not perfect. Yeah. There are many things that were less than desirable here. And it just happens again and again yeah. is that people want to jump. It's like they're so opportunistic yeah. and career-oriented or, or prize-oriented. This happened at the beginning of gene therapy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unfortunate yes. because there's lots that can be done. Yes. Not just on embryos, but on sperm and egg and so forth. Right. There's lots that you can do before right. you have to implant. There's no real law stopping you from doing anything other than implanting. Right. Many people were expressed surprise uh, at the choice of gene that he yeah. selected to target. Yeah. And I let's put away for a minute the question of how accurate or how technically precise it was. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that he could edit this absolutely um, perfectly to get the Delta 32 deletion. What struck me is that we thought this gene was pretty well understood. And yeah. yet in the last six months, we've seen reports of, oh, but it increases risk to 
West Nile disease. We knew that. We did but then we that. saw papers in Cell that, well, that reports this variant isn't actually seen in Asia. What's that all about? Reduced brain size, reduced life expectancy was a report in Nature oh, Medicine. Right. Um, the question what I'm trying to get at is, even when you think you know what the effect of editing one specific gene is, they're all so interconnected, as you well know, as one of the yeah. champions of systems right, biology right. going yeah. back. Yeah. How could we ever seriously think about tinkering with one gene for whatever the trait or desired yeah. effect might be, when this example seems to illustrate everything is just so interconnected? Yeah. And whatever trait you think you're improving, yeah. there's going to be a slew of other yeah. unwanted consequences potentially yeah. Yeah. on the other side of a Well, welcome to medicine, yeah. right? You know, it, it, yeah. you know, I think what people forget in this discussion, even some of the medical uh, yeah. scientists, is, is that uh, almost every drug yeah. that we buy has a long list of fine print, right. you know, and many of them are multi-generational. This is not the first multi-generational drug in history. So, for example, smallpox vaccines yes. uh, are still used in the military, and they have a pretty negative consequence, uh, you know, it's like 2% or something like that have negative consequences. And we did that for many decades. And we also took a chance that uh, making it extinct could be a bad thing, yeah. but it definitely affects multiple generations. Yeah. On the yeah. other hand, it's one of the few equitably distributed technologies where everybody yeah. in the world benefits from it and they yeah. no longer have to take it. So I, you know, I think there are no gigantic surprises about CCR5 recently. I mean, most right. of it was known okay. be before. And the rules that were kind of, we converged at in the NAS between 2015 and 2017 were the top priority should be bringing in functional variations of the gene, which already have precedence in the population. And there are lots of people, especially in Northern Europe, that are walking around with double nulls in CCR5. Mm -hmm. Now, whether they're minus 32 bases or minus 15 bases, I mean, it's probably not a big mm -hmm. deal. That's not, what, that's not what people are arguing about mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. But the point is, they're walking around. Now, they may be slightly better in certain categories, mm -hmm. slightly worse than others. Mm -hmm. But it's not like it's completely outrageous that you would take one normal person and turn them into a different normal person, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that happens in, in medicine right. all the okay. time. Okay, good. Just two quick questions before we move on regarding JK. He was portrayed and still is portrayed as a rogue scientist going it alone. Do you buy that? I have, I have said from the very beginning, I don't buy that. Yeah. I think it's extraordinarily unlike. Well, first of all, we know that he was talking, quite frankly, with people in the United States, several of them. Yes. Okay. And I think that they were perfectly aware of what he was doing and they tried to distance themselves from it, but they really were responsible. We should have had more encouragement of whistleblowing, yeah. uh, but I'm not sure they would have blown the whistle even, even if we yeah. offered yeah. them a lot of money or something. Furthermore, I think that given that he is in one of the most successful surveillance states in the world, mm. I mean, really exceptionally yeah. successful, yeah. Uh, they're almost as good at surveillance as Russia is at hacking. Okay. It's hard to believe the most exceptionally successful surveillance state would not be paying attention to the most amazing story mm. in history of biology, right? Mm. You know, it's just like, what, what else would they be doing surveillance yeah. on, yeah. you know, yeah. right? You know, CD piracy? I mean, yeah. no, they're, they're going to be paying attention to this. Yeah. So that means that they were in on it. Somebody in the government was in on it. Maybe there are all parts of the government that weren't in on it, but right. there's some that were, right. which means that they could have put him up to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, or at least knew that he was doing yeah. it. And if they put him up to it, they could have protected him. They could have said, look, do whatever you, you know, whatever you need to do, yeah. we're going to protect you. Yes. And so it sounds like they're putting him at risk of capital punishment when in fact they're protecting him from irate people, right. you know, that, that represent the spectrum 
of critics uh, outside of his. So by putting him on house arrest, he's protected from uh, uh, critics. Yes. I think it was said, yes, it was for his own security. Also, they could have their cake and eat it too, which is if it turns out this goes down, the the kids get sick or something like that, they say, oh, he just made it up. Yeah. You know, this, these kids never existed. There's no evidence that these kids exist. Right. But if it goes spectacularly well, and yeah. they, you know, they're like like super geniuses yeah. that are resistant to yeah. you know all the viruses they get exposed to, then then they say, oh, okay, well, yeah. let's no- nominate this guy for some prizes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So you're philosophically, you are um, not uh, against the concept of germline editing, and I'm just curious if when the technology is ready and if society gives its approval. What do you think might be some of the first uh, genes that would be uh, in the in the top group of candidates? So beyond you know devastating disease genes, or well, I'm not even sure about devastating disease genes. Okay. I'm okay. not I'm not a wildly enthusiastic about it. I'm not yeah. opposed to it. Yeah. I think we should be focusing on outcomes, which is what you're asking about, yeah. rather than method. Yeah. So the outcome is you don't want there to be sickle cell and cystic fibrosis and and thalassemia yeah. and so forth. Yeah. But as I mentioned earlier. Most of these can be cost-effectively dealt with by genetic counseling, which right. is, you, you know, doing IVF is not pleasant. So whether, whether you're eliminating them by IVF selection mm-hmm. or by IVF editing, right. you still have to do IVF, which is not a pleasant procedure. Right. And in fact, many religions would categorize the non-implanted embryos as murder. So it's neither ethically nor medically pleasant, okay? yes. yes. But genetic counseling, let's say at the dating app stage, yes. no false positive problems, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So that's that's my caveat on it. So then what would be the first, if you're going to get to the future, some people think that there's a lot of potential in the future and yeah. I'm open-minded. Yeah. But I would say infertility would be the first uh-huh. be something, you know, most of the other things you can solve in an IVF clinic. So if one of the parents is a double homozygote for dominant disease, yeah. That maybe is partially penetrant, so they're okay. They can make it yeah. reproductive age, but they're not sure that their kids will. Okay, yeah. that would be one. Infertility is another. Yeah, where there is no other treatment, and yeah. I think that's what the NAS reports, and I've been saying right. for a while that those right. would be the first applications. And you know, if you're returning it to a normal allele, it's not like you're making something that's this uh, untested. Yeah, you know, you're you're returning it to the most well tested version of the gene. Yeah. So yeah. I think those will probably yeah. be the first ones, uh, yeah. not your classic diseases. Um, right. And so you can see CCR5 falls in the category where they are double homozygotes, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, so it is kind of like, it's just yeah. most people don't consider yeah. being sensitive to HIV a disease. There's been a little talk, more than little, just in the last several months about intelligence. And I saw a quote that you gave the Telegraph in the UK where you said, I just don't think the blue eyes and an extra 15 IQ points is really a public health threat. I don't think it's a threat to our morality. I think firstly, but intelligence is such a polygenic trait. I don't think there can't be any debate about that. So is this even worth having a discussion about? It seems like it's such a... This is a very interesting point. Just amplify a little bit. People say, is this worth worrying about? In fact, a lot of my colleagues will be dismissive that such and such is not worth worrying about because it's so far out of range. Well, my experience has been things that we didn't have to worry about arrive like six decades early, right? you know, like uh, the affordable genome was supposed to take six decades and it arrived in six years. And this is one of those things where I think it's better to worry too much than too little, okay? Right, right. Otherwise, if we wait until it's on top of us, we start making very reactive decisions yeah. rather than proactive. 
So polygenics. So it's polygenic. How you even... so, so polygenics is another thing that some of my colleagues make kind of funny arguments about. Just because it's polygenic doesn't mean it doesn't have a monogenic solution. Okay. So for example, there are seven different clinical indications that you're treated with somatotropins, human growth hormone, a single gene product right. in the midst of the most complicated genetics of almost any trait, which is right. uh, stature. Right. It involves 9,500 SNP uh, point mutations that yeah. explain a, you know 30% of the variance, impossible number of environmental variables, you know, like why I'm so much taller than my ancestors. Nevertheless, in the clinic, yeah. there's one gene product yeah. that's used very effectively for many decades now. Yeah. And so polygenic can have monogenic solutions. Furthermore, we're getting better at polygenic solutions. So mm -hmm. I just mentioned earlier that we can do 26,000 edits. Yeah. That's very different from solving a polygenic trait, <laughs> but it's going faster than you might think. And then finally, with intelligence in particular, there are a number of mouse experiments that show that one or two or three genes mm -hmm. have enormous impact mm. on either specific tasks or general tasks yeah. that would be categorized as cognitive relevance. Right. So to just put your blinders on or, or you know, stick your head in the sand and say, there's no way. Yeah. But the other thing I point out, it's much more likely this is going to be debugged in adults than in germline. Because germline, it takes you 20 years debugging cycle to figure out whether you got like a right. genius or not. Right. Well, the market is bigger for adults <laughs> to become slightly more intelligent. Yes. And the development cycle right. is faster. So like in principle, you could see an effect in weeks. Right. Uh, so I think that adult gene therapies are much scarier to me right. than germline right. because you can debug them faster. That will spread like crazy viral uh, memes. Right. I want to come back in the in the last few minutes we have to some of the cool yeah. things that are going on in your lab and in some of your companies in the in the editing space. But yeah. I'm just curious. There were two in the aftermath of the CRISPR baby story. There are now two big international commissions. There's one yeah. under the auspices of the yeah. World Health Organization, yeah. and there's another one being uh, chaired by Dame K. Davis, my yeah. former PhD supervisor, yeah. and Rick Lifton uh, through the National Academies. Yeah. Um, on top of sixty plus other ethical, right. you know, learned reports. And yeah. Do you have any um, advice for these? Are you looking, is there something that these commissions can do that you think could actually carry some some weight and have some lasting effect? Because while we're talking and these groups are meeting, there's at least one guy in Russia who thinks he's going to, or he's threatening to uh, potentially apply gene editing you know, for couples with deafness. So I'm, if someone is in certain countries is determined to do this, I don't know that any learned body is going to dissuade them from doing it. Yeah, I, I'm ready to be pleasantly surprised, but I think it's unlikely that this is going to have a gigantic impact. I okay. think what will have a gigantic impact are the ongoing experiments that don't involve implantation that will move us forward to greater confidence that we can do things yeah. precisely on target and off target and develop things for sperm, egg, and embryo. Yeah. I think, for example, a clonal approach, you can sequence a clone and determine that it is perfectly on target and nothing off target. So for example, and even if you don't do a clonal analysis, what I've never seen anybody mention, and maybe I'm wrong, but I can't see how, is that when you dose somebody with gene therapy as an adult, or you do it ex vivo, you like to take out their T cells and modify and put them back in, you're dosing 10 to the eighth, you know, 100 million cells. Each one of them is a different CRISPR event, mm -hmm. any one of which could hit a tumor suppressor gene and then it gets amplified so that mm -hmm. now that it's bigger than the original dose of mm -hmm. cells. Mm -hmm. But when you put in an egg, it's a single event. 
So your a priori probability of hitting a tumor suppressor exon yeah. is a billion times lower. Yeah. So how is that more risky? You know. Yeah. So I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of technology events that's going to affect yeah. things. Also, just the growing up of Lulu and Nana, these two little Chinese girls. Yeah. Every day they get older and healthier. It's going to be like Louise Brown. It's going to be. Yeah. Hard to argue with the fact that they haven't died yet. Right. In contrast to the setbacks we had in gene therapy, which didn't stop gene therapy. Right. right. So, you know, I wish them well, and I'm happy to put in my two bits. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's really going to be settled. The whole idea that we need a moratorium is crazy because it's like the moratorium often framed as being voluntary. Well, we have involuntary penalties, right? It's like we have penalties for practicing medicine without FDA approval in the United States yes. uh, and in China. Yeah. Nevertheless, people do it. Yeah. And the penalties are not that high. So if you really yeah. want to have an effect, right. just crank up the penalties, right. increase the whistleblower, right. increase the surveillance. Right. But I don't think you need a committee to... Those things are just like totally obvious. Right. You know? Let's close by talking about some of the, the great stuff that you've been doing with CRISPR. You've launched uh, one of the companies you mentioned, Blue Han Yang, who went off, left your lab to help co-found uh, eGenesis. And of course, you have the cover of Science. Was it three years ago now with the 62? Yes. Um, so it's 2015 uh, and 2017. 2017. Yeah. So to the... Yeah. For the uh, endogenous uh, retroviral knockout. Right. So yeah. um, what's the next step? How, how so, close so are we on the We're preparing to... uh, an article describing all the rest of the wish list. So this is okay. basically a collection of everybody that's been working on this now for over 20 years. We were latecomers. We were okay. essentially invited by the pioneers and we're very indebted to them. You know, we published our CRISPR and they said, oh, that's what we need because they had hoped it was one gene and then they realized it yeah. might be more. Yeah. I think it's on the order of 80 genes. So we've now got that full wish list and that will be published. We've already started primate preclinical trials yeah. with a nine-month survival. I shouldn't say too much about okay, it, but, but, but yeah. nine-month survival. Yeah. And it's looking quite good. I yeah. mean, I think as we refine the, you know, we want to make immune suppression that's completely identical, compatible yes. with current immune suppression for current human-to-human -human yeah. transplants. But I, it's promising. Yeah. So I think that could go quite quickly. And do you have a similar company that you're now setting up in China? Yes. Yeah, well? So there's a similar company called Kihan. They are loosely coupled. Luhan is CEO at one, right. CTO at CSO, yeah. CTO at the other. And we try to keep them very cleanly separated. So, for example, one of the things I'm particularly proud of is that we have a different strain of pig in the two countries. So it's Bama in China and it's Yucatan strain in uh -huh. America. And it's not obvious some of the advantages of that, but one of them is there's a strict ban against transporting animal products, living animal pieces, because of foot and mouth disease and yeah. other potential zoonotic diseases. Yeah. And here we can prove beyond shadow that we did not transfer the living material, just the information. And so we redo everything. And it's good to redo things because sometimes a different strain is yeah. a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, you'll find out whether things are generalizable and so forth. Yeah. So we, we do everything twice. I see. Yeah. Right. That's great. Last time I heard you speak was at ASGCT, and you began by sort of you know, almost poking fun at yourself because you said something like, I'm just constantly being pestered by journalists who want to know about the the woolly mammoth and they yeah. say because you know yeah. you haven't published anything in yeah. 10 years and yeah. they say, but wait there's a whole flurry right. uh, yeah. coming along yeah. so um you went to siberia i think last year was that your first trip it was, it was to, a year uh, ago august yeah yeah, yeah. How, how did that so tell me a little bit about that trip from your point of view so uh 
Yeah, I, uh, I felt it was overdue. We've had a very collaborative relationship with the Zimoffs, who yeah. are running the most likely location for our yeah. cold-resistant elephants, if yeah. we ever get them, yeah. called Pleistocene Park. And there's two of them now, one, in, one near Moscow, which is more convenient uh-huh. for the wealthy and powerful. And then there's one in Chersky, which is where I went, right. which is really in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it's like 50 hours to get there. And it's a lovely place. I have to qualify the lovely. It's lovely if you don't mind having snow flurries and being eaten alive by mosquitoes <laughs> in the same day. You know, and that's the best day, right? <laughs> the worst day is this, it's so cold the mosquitoes can't yeah. live or that, <laughs> or that there's enough mosquitoes that will literally kill a baby caribou. I mean, that is, there are documented cases of this. What? So they have insane levels of weather and mosquitoes. But other than that, it's beautiful. And... Uh, and they really have established all the megafauna they need. But in addition to me sort of doing a site visit, evaluating how far along they were in preparing the park, yeah. I also went there to get mammoth specimens to develop a new technology for analyzing genomic structure that all the ancient DNA people yeah. say, you can't get long-range structure, and I think you can. Yeah. And so we went there to get good specimens, which we had not been able to get by, you know, begging by email but when we showed up in person then it's wonderful you get treated like a king and it's like here's the freezer full of mammoths take as many as you want and so we dissected and i got to do this personally whenever i get to do experiments with my own hands i i'm very happy guy yeah and uh so we dissected six mammoths and did all the paperwork to get the samples back to the u.s and we've done some of the experiments on testing and i'm not going to ruin the story but we we're very excited with the results. And that's just one of the four papers that we hope will come out this year. And and I do love poking fun at myself. I'm the easiest person to poke fun at. So it's a, it's a cheap shot. But there have been endless series of news articles for 11 years without any peer-reviewed paper. I keep pointing this out. Yeah. And they just say, it's okay. Okay. Well, I'm <laughs> but sure. I, do, I personally want to have the peer-reviewed paper. So. Right. Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure the drought will come to an end soon. George, yeah. I think we'll leave it there. Thank okay. you for all of the amazing work that you do and the fact that you, the way that you inspire, I think, so many people in our community. Thank you so much. Wow, it's my pleasure. Thank you.